I've managed to change the firmware on your reaction wheel and I've implemented a thing that literally does this, okay? So first, step one, spin in a random direction, right? And step two, ignore all commands on the bus. And step three, go to one, right? Like at that point, you, you, you've lost your satellite. It is not coming back, right? No matter what you do, unless you have some kind of a grabber or like an inspector payload. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. This is the second episode in a four-part series marking two years since a cyber attack on a space system kicked off a massive Russian invasion of the sovereign state of Ukraine. You can learn more about how that attack unfolded and how the U.S. commercial satellite communications company Viasat reacted in the first episode. But there are a few key points from that story which will help in understanding this episode. This week, we're looking at key cyber vulnerabilities and how a satellite can be held for ransom. Let's start with February 24th, 2022, when Russia launched a cyber attack against Viasat's KASAT network. This is a bi-directional, high-speed satellite broadband internet communication system. It's used by governments, television stations, businesses, and residents in Europe and North Africa. And it's good to remember that any kind of communication between Earth and satellites of any kind, such as the GPS satellites that help us navigate air, sea, or land traffic on Earth, all of it travels on radio waves. Those signals can be jammed or spoofed, and those activities are generically called electronic warfare, or EW. While this series is dedicated to cyber warfare and space systems, it's good to also keep electronic warfare in mind when thinking about the threat landscape holistically. And what's also good to bear in mind is that space systems comprise of four interconnected segments. First, the space segment. That's your satellites. Second, the link segment, which includes antennas, transceivers, and encryption. Third, the ground segment. That's the ground stations, wired communications links, and cyber systems. And fourth, your user segment. Think of your smartphone or your John Deere tractor, a ship's navigation console, and drones that are military grade, as well as those at-home drone kits requiring just a few thousand dollars charged to your basic credit card. In every one of these segments, at every step, Software code actualizes each command for every single electronic or mechanical operation that makes a satellite work. Consider that for a moment. That's the cyber attack surface, and it's huge. This episode is somewhat nerdy, but hang in there. You will get the payoff of understanding the current threat landscape, including electronic warfare, a glaring yet little-discussed cyber vulnerability, and how a satellite could be held for ransom. Joining me to break this all down is Greg Falco, Ang Sui, and Hector Falcon. Here's our conversation. Hello, Greg, Ang, and Hector. Welcome, and thank you all so much for joining me on the Downlink Podcast. Thanks for having us, Laura. Woohoo! Thank you, Laura. Good to see you. Now, before we start this very meaty discussion, we need to do some introductions, the basics. And Greg, why don't you start us off? Sounds good. So I'm Gregory Falco. I'm a assistant professor at Cornell University. I'm based here in Ithaca, New York, and my work is in aerospace security and autonomy, where my group does things like build malware for space vehicles, and we also build new autonomous space missions for defense and intelligence purposes. And on Europe, and please don't leave out the Hackasat connection. Okay. Um, hi. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Ang Tsui. I am um, a embedded security researcher and also the founder of Red Balloon Security. Uh, we are a company based uh, out of Manhattan, New York City. And our one focus is um, effectively we create technology to secure all of the really important embedded things that run the world that almost no one thinks about, except for hackers, maybe. 
hackers think about how to hack those things. Um, but yeah, so our, our we have a company that helps some of the, the largest manufacturers of uh, the most important things that control the world to build actual secure products that can actually maybe hold up against, you know, 2023 adversarial capabilities. And Hackasat? Oh, that's right. And I participated in Hackasat. End of story. Uh, so we were, um, so Red Balloon Security, along with, uh, you know, John Marks and some other people, um, we as a group helped the first year of Hackasat. And um, yeah, like I, I think that, the idea and the mission was a really good one, right? How do we get more eyeballs on this pretty obvious problem that we needed to solve, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe yesterday, right? Of um, all the crazy things that we depend on now, but now they're in space, right? So, you know, Air Force, Space Force, DOD wanted to come up with a way of, um, yeah, like a new idea of how do we get the talent that is needed to solve this next problem to think about and work on space problems. So that's how... Uh, Hackersat happened the first year, and it was the first year of pandemic. So good luck trying to do a hands-on, you know, let's be united as the people of Earth thing, right, with hardware that can talk to space, but all in simulation because we can't leave our bedroom. So, yeah. <laughs> and lastly, but definitely not least, Hector, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do at the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center. Afternoon, everyone, uh, and, and thank you very much for uh, kind of delineating that acronym. Sometimes that gets me as well. Uh, so I'm Hector Falcon. I'm the Cyberspace and Intelligence Integrator here at the Space ISAC, the Information Sharing and Analysis Center. So what does that mean? Here in Colorado Springs, I help enumerate the gray space. And when we talk about different domains, different technologies, different standards, different methodologies, the adversary thinks about more than just what's in front of him or her. Uh, or if it's in this case AI ML as well, not to exclude that one, uh, th that's a definite good subject. But with regards to the gray space, how to kind of look at the correlations between the different telecommunication standards, domains, whether it's RF radio frequency or whether it's ones and zeros or whether it's optical and how to kind of leverage that into a correlative perspective that then allows us to understand more than just the adversarial intent, but also where are some notional kind of pivoting components and where does that kind of lead us with regards to the proverbial rabbit hole as well. Thank you. So Hector, for the benefit of our audience, I'm starting off this episode by seating the floor, the virtual floor to you. Give us a current you know, day threat assessment briefing. And Ang and Greg, once he's done, let's not hold back. If you have a question or two, yeah. I'm sure the audience would agree with me. We want to hear it. So Hector, take it away. Awesome. Thank you, Laura. Uh, so currently I have a snapshot with regards to what that threat assessment looks like. So when we think about the Red Sea, most think of just kinetic uh, components. We think of implications on the supply chain. But what we're starting to see is also a multi-domain type drone usage, and that enumerates concerns and mentions with regards to targeting of different infrastructures, some of which recently has been the undersea infrastructure type as well. With that individual area of operations covering over 1,000 plus mobile satellite terminals with public facing internet protocol addresses, that actually it's a pretty scary venture with regards to the 22 plus nations that leverage those mobile satellite terminals. And then obviously the individual footprints in that region that are linked to those services, that connectivity, um, as opposed to some of the terrestrial infrastructure that are seen. Also of note is that some of the electronic warfare capabilities that are kind of being promulgated through some of those nation state investments are quite concerning with regards to some of the diversity in drone payloads that we're starting to see. And by payload, it could be an electronic warfare, it could be jammer, it could be optical, it could also be a repeater. And with more hardened antenna infrastructure on those drones, we're starting to also see meshed network implementation of drones. So it's not just one drone that's attacking you. You may have one central drone that then has a meshed architecture that could then dispel and then basically break off and do subsequent missions, utilizing that primary as a jump off point or as a relay kind of paradigm. Uh, there's also been a marked uh, notice of AI aboard some of those drones as well. So we're starting to see the leveraging of that even on those kind of airspace individual assets within the aerial regime. 
With regards to the radio frequency spectrum, we're also starting to see a couple upticks there, obviously around conflict zones and the nations that are bordering those kind of delicate regions. With regards to some of the safety bulletins that I'm starting to see through the Federal Aviation Administration and then those type of also channels that the international aerospace uh, folks, the EASA, the IATA, those other kind of FAA correlations, starting to see quite a bit of those that are leveraging forethought for pilots to understand their avionics packages, but also to definitely start running through their checklists about what happens in those kind of contested airspaces with regards to, is my altimeter checking right? Am I still getting a good GPS signal? Are my GNSS sensors, are my altitude correlations correct? Because sometimes you may have to go to a visual flight range paradigm. Also, and, and no, I'm just going to stop you and, and interrupt you there. But you're talking that signals from space assets are, are, are being jammed and therefore are, are making it difficult for pilots to rely on um their navigation instrumentation that happens to be connected to um, space assets, correct? That, that is correct. Transitioning those airspaces is unique when we think about how far those assets are, how attenuated those signals can become within our environment, and then all that it takes with regards to blocking off particular regions of airspace just by virtue of saturation of radio frequency signals. It doesn't take a significantly strong signal. It just takes a pervasive signal. And what are you seeing in in the cyber side insofar as uh, space systems are concerned? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Laura. Uh, so when we talk about actual space systems, right, when we think about virtual private networks, we tend to think of them on a terrestrial plane. But in reality, what does that VPN connection tell you? I may not necessarily know what's traveling across that conduit, but who you're connected to may also enumerate the next target that I definitely want to leverage if I'm putting my adversarial hat on. Excellent. Thank you so much. Gent, have any questions? Yeah, I have, you know, so I, I have a comment and, and maybe many questions. Okay. So, you know, if we roll time back, right, like before, you know, the Ukraine conflict happened, you know, if I were to listen to your, the sentences you said, I would assume this is billion-dollar weapon system, massively sophisticated global real-time coordination from, like, allies and stuff. Basically, you know, Independence Day, Area 51, when the aliens come, like, the door is open, and it's like, we have all of this stuff done, and it's super high-tech, right? But fast forward to, like, I don't know, yesterday. We've all seen, you know, footage of, let's say, some person, right, <laughs> flying a 300 to $500 drone with a hand grenade attached to it, dropping it and then killing a T-90, which is a, what, like a $5 million tank, right? And if you look at the actual offensive drone side, I mean, Need is kind of the mother of invention. I mean, we're starting to see, aside from all of the homemade stuff where, you know, well, I guess if you, if you were to ask like, you know, 10 years ago, right? If you were to ask me, hey, do you, would, do you see like actual at scale use of 3D printing garbage parts in, in modern warfare? I would say, no, that's ridiculous, right? But if you look at, you know, like some of the drones entering, you know, that conflict area now, there's an Australian company that literally ships these flat packed, you know, IKEA looking drones that is made almost entirely of wood. You know, I think you can assemble them in like half an hour each, right? And a pallet of like a thing that's four foot tall has like 20 of these things on it. And they cost $3,000, right? So all the things that you're saying are, are true in terms of, you know, supply chain, EW, and contested airspace and all that stuff. But what I think is the weirdest, most interesting thing for me, right, both on the offensive side and the defensive side, I mean, we're, you're seeing everybody throw everything they have at it. But the really interesting, innovative new things are probably things that cost less than $3,000, right? So if you go, and, go on AliExpress, you, you will find like the exact like jammer that both sides are using, right, for like $80 and with free shipping. So I think what's happening makes a lot of sense. But, you know, entering into this phase, it was definitely, I think, a whole brand new phase of, yeah, like the $300 thing going up against literally a billion dollar global, you know, communication infrastructure and having the $300 thing win. How about, you know, cyber malware as a service? I mean, how much does that actually cost? Would that also fit into the under $3,000 range? Yeah, I mean, I so if you're going on, you know, black market, right, like darknet and buying just like 
machines to run whatever, it, it probably costs you less than a cent per minute to own and you get tens of thousands of them. So it absolutely costs way less than $3,000. Yeah, service definitely. models are, are really exciting. Like it's so fun to go with ransomware as a service kits and stuff like that, right? Like the, it, it scales yeah. so well as a business model if you take a look at that stuff. So as Zong was saying, you know, just the, the random any day person can really take that up and, and go against a major uh, war enterprise. The asymmetricness of this space is is crazy. And also, I just want to say, Hector, you should be a traffic reporter or a weather reporter <laughs> because, man, what a what a perfect voice for that. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Falco. And, and, and Laura, Gregory, Dr. Falco, you guys are absolutely on par when we think about how some of that threat landscape uh, leveraging is happening. And we're seeing some of the publicly facing portfolios being leveraged against these entities with actual, like you mentioned, on infrastructure that can be rapidly deployed, rapidly fielded. But then also when we think about how some of the threat actors are leveraging those affiliate networks and open source resources to kind of get after those infrastructure investments, you're absolutely right. It doesn't take a multi-million dollar exquisite asset to go ahead and deter, dissuade, or defeat a multi-billion dollar component, right? It just so, takes Hector, I, have, I have a quick question away. on that. Great point. Sorry to interrupt you, but like on a threat assessment, like watch standpoint, which is what you guys do really well, can you tell the difference between like the rando in their garage jamming these systems versus the, you know, other military against other military jamming a system? Like, can you determine the sophistication or on your radars, does it really just look the same? And like, you know, the 300, the, the 80 buck thing that Arm mentioned, is that really look the same from a threat intel standpoint as like if the, the US DOD decided to do some jamming and have it give someone a bad day, do they look, they look similar? What does that look like? Great question, Dr. Falco. And so as we look at the different publicly available tools and one to two that are actually part of our membership offerings, we can see some levels of sophistication with regards to is it mimicry? You know, is it mimicking a satellite kind of signal on orbit? Is it adjacent to and is it providing a level of suppression? And that's a big one, right? If I've achieved suppression of a particular sideband, then I've definitely done my job, right? I've negated that traffic. So some of those elements are discernible. And then when we talk about, for instance, airspace assets within our atmosphere, the, the drone paradigm, I don't see that level of affinity as clearly as I do on orbit. Um, but we're currently kind of fielding new levels of data digest in order to kind of understand that Leo and Neo paradigm. Because obviously, if we just think that, you know, interference and nefarious actors are doing what they need to do in geo, then we're definitely incorrect. Great question. Ooh, can I, um, I want to follow up something with that. So, you know, when we talk about like space security, the first, like, you know, for everybody, for all the audience, I think probably the first thing that comes to mind is you want to look up, right? You want to say, ah, it's in the sky, the stuff up there, we need to secure that. Um, but maybe we forget, like, all the people basically live on Earth, and we can't use the space stuff if we can't have the computers on Earth work, right? And, you know, going after a terminal, right? So instead of a satellite zipping through LEO, but, you know, just a terminal sitting in, like, a reg regular residential apartment or some business, right? Like, you know, basically, you have to knock out either one or two or both of the parts of the system for the thing not to work. And as we saw in Ukraine, yeah, attacking embedded computers, that, you know, had, has like security posture from, I don't know, like 20 years ago on Earth, right, is way easier and faster and more effective in this case. Um, so we definitely have to remember most of the stuff that we actually need for space to work is on Earth and it's very old, right? People also tend to think that space things are new. Because, you know, movies and things. But, yeah, the stuff on Earth that has made the you know, communication and tracking and control of those satellites work for the last 30 years, guess what? They're probably 30 years old, right? And they're not going to get changed anytime soon. Yeah, I guess we should remind everyone there's four segments of what makes space systems space system, right? We have the space vehicle segment, which is the thing that actually lives in orbit. You got the ground segment, which kind of is the industrial control systems on the ground. You have the link segment, which is like kind of the physics pro wavelength protocols and whatnot that you got going over the air. And then you have the user segment, which is kind of like the HMI, the human machine interface, which is maybe your phone or end user route mount modem. And all of these are, you know, except for the link segment, really embedded systems. Um, 
and what Hector is talking about with regards to EW attacks is really targeting that link segment for the most part. Now, I want to turn this discussion to what's not been on the radar of most policymakers, decision makers, purse string holders, and military leaders who deploy the word cybersecurity. And if anyone thinks that this is a call out or a criticism, please, I'm in the same boat. And a part of the purpose of this episode is to go to the unfamiliar places, because if we can't talk about it, it will be that much more difficult to address those threats. So when I think about cybersecurity threats, I pick the low-hanging familiar terms like DDoS, phishing, brute force password attacks. You know, these things are in common parlance. But the Viasat attack back in February 2022 was a multi-staged, two-pronged attack, part of which involved firmware. And so, Ong, I know you and your company, Red Balloon, have been laser-focused on embedded hardware systems and firmware. Just to bring everyone along, can you very briefly explain what is embedded hardware on a space system, where can we find it, and what is firmware? Yeah. Okay. So we all remember Greg's four segments, right? So I'm not going to repeat them, but right. It's um, basically what we study and what we care about are all the computers that run, you know, for example, the vehicle, the satellite vehicle and the ground control and the radio transmission stuff. And basically everything that that's around the system, that's not literally an actual RF signal in the air or vacuum. Uh, it, it's pretty much a computer of some kind. And the definition, I guess, of you know firmware in this case would be basically just any code that is really important, but you most people don't know exists and haven't read, right? That controls everything anyway. So the thing that we focus on is you know, literally the, the piece of the very small piece of software that isn't in the main controller of the satellite, but, you know, in each of the actuators, for example, like... Um, uh, a reaction wheel, right? It's basically like a very, you know, it's a wheel that spins and as it spins, it imparts torque, right? Laws of physics. But that, just that one wheel is still controlled by a microprocessor that runs, you know, something of a quote unquote an operating system. It tends to be fairly lightweight, but you know, you're still talking about probably like a million lines of code controlling probably like, I don't know, like a, a 10, 20, $30 million satellite if we're even talking CubeSats. And larger ones have more sophisticated actuators, but um, all the things that run that control the cyber physical things that most people don't know exist. And now to dive into your and Red Balloon's work on what are the threats to embedded hardware and firmware on space systems? You know, what could be the effects? And in your experience, where are the gaps in securing embedded hardware? on our space systems from malicious actors, whether they be nation states or criminal hacker groups? Yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll bring that into, you know, something space specific, right? So, you know, when we're talking about these embedded things and firmware, you know, I, I think the reaction wheel is a good example, you know? So imagine, a, you know, like a CubeSight is something that you can put on your lap, right? You know, like your 1U or 2U. Um, and you need to turn the thing in space. And if you did, you can do it without dumping mass, aka propellant, right? Um, you can effectively do that, you know, in, in much more of a renewable way because you get all the electrons for free, right? And as long as you can sink that heat somewhere, you can spin all day long. Um, you know, so few people really think about, yeah, like what is the actual piece of software that controls the thing that actually controls the motor? Because, you know, even at that low level, right, even a single motor, it's very sophisticated. Like there's the vibration, you know, there are body plots that have to be taken account. All of it has to be done, you know, in real time. And, oh, if your thing, whatever firmware, whatever program crashes, remote hands is really expensive, right? Like you, once it's in space, it's in space. So if you are writing a thing that needs to have somebody push the reset button every like three days, it's not going to, you know, oh, it's not going to fly in space. <laughs> right. Um, and, th- you know, so on your typical satellite, right? So a satellite, you know, I want the audience to think about the satellite, not like a satellite, like a computer. It really is basically a very like accessible network of tiny computers that uh, is designed so that any computer can probably go and manage and change, reprogram any other computer just because, again, if something goes wrong in space, 
you know, you can't hit that reset button, right? So you're going to need to make uh, your system very resilient against, you know, cosmic rays and things. But, you know, if you do only that and don't consider the fact that humans sometimes are adversarial and want to t own the satellite that they don't, it's not theirs, right? Um, you know, that kind of uh, reprogrammability and accessibility, right, done wrong can give the attacker pretty much everything they need in order to fully control the satellite. Now, let's think about, you know, the example of um, the reaction wheel, right? So, you know, satellite, they have antennas, solar panel, right? Most of the time you want to point your solar panel roughly to the sun and your antenna roughly to the earth because uh, that's kind of the point of a communication satellite, right? But um, let's say I'm the attacker and I've just like through a few commands, you know, from the ground, uh, I've managed to change the firmware on your reaction wheel and I've impl implemented a thing that literally does this, okay? So first, step one, spin in a random direction, right? And step two, ignore all commands on the bus. And step three, go to one, right? Like at that point, you, you, you've lost your satellite. It is not coming back, right? No matter what you do, unless you have some kind of a grabber or like an inspector payload to physically get control of it. I mean, the thing is literally in the firmware of the thing that next to the hardware wheel that spins, right? So if you can lock that down, that is an excellent way to deny access to that that satellite, which um, I kind of want to bring back to, uh, uh, you know, Greg, Greg's paper. Awesome, right? Like I've been talking about, you know, playing out realistic scenarios with ransomware for years and years. And I think, yeah, like on my top three, you know, if I were to crime list, right? Um, ransoming a communication satellite, probably geo, that's probably publicly traded, right? Is probably a really good way to make ransom money, right? Because chances are, they're probably not going to tweet that we've been owned. They're probably going to pay up you for their customers, you know, sell all their stock and, and things of, of what like that. Right. So, you know, this changing of the cyber physical things that turn the satellite is probably a piece of something that we will likely see in the future. And that is ransoming satellites for money. So I agree. <laughs> Which is good because oh. we're going to go into that right now. Now, I uh, mentioned criminal hacker groups in that question that I gave to you on because, uh, you know, we have heard of criminal groups using what's called ransomware to extract money, a ransom, usually in cryptocurrency from a wide variety of public, private and government organizations. Here in the U.S., we are familiar with the 2021 Colonial Pipeline attack. That's when the criminal group DarkSide was able to take control of the computer systems that Colonial used to manage the pipeline. And I can tell you that here in Washington, D.C., in the Beltway, I couldn't refuel my vehicle for days. And Colonial was forced to pay a Bitcoin ransom, some of which the FBI was able to claw back. But before that, in 2017, Sandworm, which is a somewhat infamous cyber unit of Russia's GRU military intelligence agency, it launched its non-Petya, I mean, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, could be not Petya, uh, ransomware attack on Ukraine. All told, this attack shut down ports, locked up, and often destroyed computers in at least 60 countries, including in the United States. The global shippers like Maersk and FedEx are caught up in it. The Chicago-based food company, Mondelez International, you know, it's the one that makes the Oreos and Triscuits, which that alone should kind of piss anybody off that they were messed with. It wasn't spared either. But what's worse, when folks actually try to pay their ransom? It was a joke. The whole intent was to inflict destruction. It was a mess that caused at least $10 billion. And we only know about $10 billion because a lot of companies don't like fessing up that they had to pay anything or, or do anything or spend anything, right? Um, but $10 billion of damage according to the U.S. government. So on that cheerful note, Greg, you've been looking into ransomware and space systems and you have a report called Wanna Fly. Tell us about that. And yeah, um, doesn't it also involve embedded hardware? Yeah, there's, there's a close relationship. And actually, just to take you back, um, it goes back to a, a panel that Ong and I were on a couple of years back at uh, CyberLeo, which was on ransomware. And at the time, we hadn't seen any real public displays of ransomware attacks against space systems. And so 
my lab, the aerospace adversary is like, well, we should probably build one so everyone knows that it's possible. And especially we should build one that is open source that will scare the crap out of everybody. And that way people maybe actually will start using some defenses against this thing, uh, which is, you know, what a real hacker group would like to do. So we developed this system, this ransomware kit uh, that would be able to specifically on the space vehicle, understand the dependencies of what's required for that specific mission. And then we lock down uh, the parts of the, the space vehicle that do anything relating to getting value out of that vehicle from the user. But we also enable com consistent communications from the attacker and the user so that as the bad guy, we can go ask them for the payment and get the money. And so it was a great demonstration to be able to say, here's the architecture for how you would actually implement this ransomware attack on this vehicle. And then now we're having another paper that's coming out, which is the follow-on to the WannaFly. It's going to be coming out in March this year. And we've kind of open sourced all the code for this and the fixes for it um, for CFS, the core flight system. It's a NASA flight software. Um, and so now everyone will have access to their own, their own ransomware kit. Uh, for space vehicles, and we look forward to some vehicles getting ransomed uh, with our kit, and hopefully people using the yeah, well, uh, fixes was... for it. <laughs> okay, so when you mentioned the whole, like, oh, last time we were on the panel, we came up with a lot of, like, have we been the actual people innovating ransomware for space, and maybe we should just stop, or no, right? So hopefully, you know, no no actual satellite gets ransomed, but um, yeah, here's a question. What, what, do, what do you find to be the most unique, right, out of, you know, having made this toolkit, this ransom kit, like what is the most unique part of it compared to your typical terrestrial Windows one? Yeah, thanks for asking that very well-pointed question. The, the reason why this is unique is because space systems, specifically vehicles, have a crazy amount of dependencies. Um, and if you were to ransomware something, most typically like just encrypt everything that's happening in the, in the uh, system, the file system, then the system just kind of stops working except for the comms. But in a vehicle, like a space vehicle, you have a lot of like station keeping exercises, other some routines that need to happen. Otherwise, your thing becomes a brick, you know, permanently. So how do you make sure that you manipulate the attack so that you allow all the stuff that really needs to happen to continue happening and that you're able to still maintain the value of that asset so that someone actually wants it back? So as Ang was saying earlier, you have this like, you know, you have a geo uh, communications bird, which, you know, costs tens of millions, if not much, much more than that to develop, you want to make sure it's still operational and ready to go in case someone's ready to pay the ransom for that. Uh, you don't want to brick the thing and then say, hey, give me the money. And you know, the thing doesn't work anymore because no one's going to pay for that. So I think the most important and unique part of this was carefully orchestrating and understanding the dependencies of what parts of the file systems, what parts of the flight software we were able to stop and stop from working that was really important for the user but at the same time, allow the system to continue working. So I, that's kind of what was interesting and unique about this. Hector? Uh, Dr. Falco, great, great point. And Ang, thank you very much for that question. You, you triggered a thought in my head with regards to, uh, I forgot what year it came out, the Defense Intelligence Agency kind of threats to space. Uh, capture that they had uh, with regards to reversible and non-reversible effects. And that delineates exactly what you're saying. How are those dependencies going to allow me enough access to derive, but then also elicit that payment and then be able to return that so that I can potentially think about that in the future, right? Uh, because we're starting to see uh, not only double, but triple extortion. And then obviously now the nefarious actors would have to think about, okay, if I'm going to do a double or a triple extortion with some uh, ransomware overlay, is that going to turn the satellite into a brick? And then I'm going to completely negate all the hours and hours of exquisite work that I had to put in just to be able to execute uh, on that actual vulnerability or that context. So no, great, great capture, Dr. Falco. And yeah. the thing is, you know, Craig, I have to ask, you know, you said that you did an experiment, right? To, to check if, what you wrote actually works, everyone's going to want to know, how did you conduct this experiment with a real satellite in space? No, so it wasn't done with a satellite in space. It was done with a flat sat, right? So something that is a fully functional bus and model that you have uh, in your lab. In, in our case, we have a 6U. Uh, I can't say the company that built it. It's under NDA, but it's uh, used for company that built it does make military satellite systems. Um, and so we know that this is something that uh, is workable. We also have another 
satellite that we brought to our lab recently um, that is made by another big commercial provider of satellites from the EU. Uh, we also have tested this on uh, open source flight software um, that we have simulations on for the lab. So we pretty much know this works on real hardware and real operating systems for software. Have not put it in space yet, but that'll be a fun experiment when the time comes. So with that, though, Greg, you know, on what are the gaps? I mean, are organizations like the Space Force or Cyber Command, Space Command, I mean, are they are, are they thinking about things like ransomware attacks? Are they thinking about things like firmware attacks? I, because I, I have to say, and I'm not, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm certainly not the dullest, this would not have actually really occurred to me. And I, I can't say that it occurs to a whole bunch of people either. We just, again, throw around the words, you know, cyber attack and, you know, the alarm bells go off and it's, it's, it's like a, you know, a catchphrase. So what are the gaps? I mean, there have to be. There are lots. Uh, the whole, okay. How to even start this? Okay. So I think the first thing visually for the, for the listeners here, right? When you close your eyes and you think, some person hacks, you know, space things. Again, everybody's going to think, oh, super high tech is super new. Probably an unexpected thing that is reality. You know, at least most of the things on the ground, even the stuff inside these, in the vehicles, um, they're not new, right? Like they have to be very, you know, like designed and tested, thoroughly tested, gain flight heritage and all that stuff, you know, if you're in space. And when you're on the ground, you know, if you spent, I don't know, like, half a billion dollars building your communication infrastructure from all your satellites that had to be up there in, in the mid nineties, you know, you're not going to tear down your ground control system to build a brand new one. Right. So the stuff on earth is very legacy. The firmware on those things on most of the things that we depend on today, it's probably written right at the cusp of when humans really thought about the need to write secure input processing circuit, like, 95 right to like 98 that is the level of you know maturity of, of security of like the legacy hardware that's both on the ground and in space because yeah if you think about it like back in the 80s you know some people were better programmer than programmers than others but like input validation is just not even a word right like you know in the curriculum for computer science back then so imagine people writing you know software to run on computers that don't even have a keyboard or a monitor that's supposed to go in space that can never break. Yeah, like they're probably going for reliability and not security. So, you know, the well, things that, that said, yeah, we think about, yeah. I'm sorry, like, not to interrupt you, but like people were building code back then. The the ones who were like probably the most versed on security as you're describing in like the late 90s or whatever, they were probably not the ones building space systems, right? Like they were probably the ones working at the early PC companies at the time, like at least the best yeah. of breed, right? So it's, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah. like that's also part of the legacy problem, right? Like you're right, talking yeah. about the cusp of when security started, but we really didn't even have the people who were competent in coding to do the build of these spaces. Yeah, can you just can we just say that sentence again? Like I think that's so, such an interesting sentence, right? Like computers are so new that we literally can remember the dawn of the age when we realized security can be a thing. Like not that like we have great security versus we don't like. Like man discover fire, right? Like another person discovers, huh, check input value. Like that literally happened in our lifetime. So so yeah, like that's how bad the legacy things are. And we've made huge strides since then, right? But you know, the things that actually when I was uh, my first job out of school, out of college, I was building high frequency trading networks for for a hedge fund. Um, and one of the things my my old boss used to say is uh there's nothing more permanent than something temporary, right? So you know, like all this stuff that sticks around in the data center because it works, because, you know, it's there and it's reliable. Like, yeah, we find every time I go into one of these places, 100% guaranteed you're going to find a U.S. Robotics 56K modem, 56K flex modem, right? This year is 2023. I checked. I think they stopped making the second version of that modem, like in 2002. But you know, this is a thing that's used in every data center for reverse dial-in for, you know, like power failure and remote management. But yeah, think about who wrote the security component for the 56K modem. Pretty much no one, right? Yeah, and that's absolutely. the one way that it guaranteed to get you into pretty much all data centers. And guess what? Ground control systems are data centers. 
That's an amazing thing. Um, so no kidding. Um, so uh, things were created in order to be redundant. They weren't taught to be cybersecure redundant. So therefore, you're absolutely right. The threat landscape does extend to those. And even things that we don't see uh, can definitely get us. So you're right. Uh, sometimes norms are, uh, are just that delicate things. Just to piggyback on that for a second, I think Hector brought up an important point. In space, redundancy is common because we know things will fail. But redundancy does not mean security because redundancy usually means you've built the same thing twice. But if I break into it once, I'm going to be able to break into it twice. So right now, the at least the U.S., the DOD is trying to develop what they call their hybrid space architecture, which is trying to come up with a whole bunch of different providers to facilitate uh, you know, more robust assurance capability for space access and communication um, in light of an attack. So they basically want to say, you know, assuming one vendor goes down, we can rely on the next guy to kind of get their back. But the reality is that that's not actually what hybrid space architecture means. What hybrid space architecture from a cyber standpoint really should mean is you have like diverse architectures, you have diverse operating stack, you have diverse capabilities from a cyber standpoint for each of the vendors. Because if they all are just redundant and have the same capability over and over again, the same guy is going to be able to get into all of that redundancy. But we need to figure out how to create uh, heterogeneous cyber systems so that, you know, if you break into one, you can't just break into all. So here's another. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, here's a here's a fun, maybe crazy point, right? Like, if I think back, right? So, I'm I turned forty one today, and so you know when I was like I don't know in high school in the seven, my teens. Thank you. Even even my mom and my father knew that before you put in like connect your Windows ninety seven laptop to the internet, you have to install antivirus, right? And you know people generally run this experiment. Once every few years, I guess, right? I think the current time is like, what, 90 seconds? You, you plug in like an unpatched XP service patch one laptop, it gets owned in like very short number of minutes, right? Anywhere on the planet. So think about that. That exists in the same universe and time as the satellites that run like Windows CE, right? Probably written, you know, like the late 90s floating around in space and none of them have anything even remotely similar to any kind of intrusion detection, any kind of, you know, like malware detection on the computer that is the thing that runs the satellite, right? So at some point we're going to get there, right? I think, you know, if you want to find problems or things that are wrong in execution on a computer, the best place to look is inside that computer. So in my opinion, I think that the best place to put the security is literally inside the firmware and the thing that floats in space. But the problem here is, you know, this is kind of a unique facet of just all embedded, almost all verticals that require predominantly like embedded things, right? So on your, you know, if you have a Windows or Mac or Linux computer, you can, for the most part, take the thing apart, change the code, right? You know, look around and modify things and maybe even add augmentations like increased security or functionality, right? But, you know, can you do that to your um, iPhone? Nope, right? Can you do that to a PLC or, you know, like your John Deere? You cannot, and you certainly cannot do the, that kind of thing to almost any component inside ground control station and satellite today because um, that firmware belongs to, is proprietary, runs on a proprietary system that is not yours. And even if you can see the blatant vulnerabilities, you can't fix it, right? You're not allowed to. So that is an extra sort of layer of indirection that makes securing space really difficult because it, it's not only actually pragmatically difficult to change the firmware on a thing that's floating in space. But, you know, the business model of the thing says, you know, vendor A made the reaction wheel. Vendor B can't even look into it, let alone modify the thing. And if you try to, well, guess what? All your liability goes out the window. No more support. You know, good luck with your flaming trash fire. Like, not my problem or whatever. Right. But, you know, fundamentally, that is a dynamic that isn't sustainable. We need to, like, continue surviving in a world with hackers. Right. We need to be able to have people look at the security problem and change it, you know, in a, in a reasonable, hopefully short period of time. Um, and if we live in a world where the you know, vendors literally have a rule that says no one except the vendor shall ever change the firmware, you end up actually in a situation of a thing that I'm starting to just call like the right to secure, you know, like we have the right to repair things, right? That's not a settled debate, but, you know, I think people generally have their opinions on it, but think about 
the one step further of like the right to, right to secure it. Like there's a satellite up there that's really important. The vendor has been supporting this thing for the last 20 years. And guess what? They're sick of it. They're not making money off of it anymore, right? But the 20-year-old firmware has all sorts of bones that everybody on earth knows about. Their contract, the, you know, the contract says nobody but the vendor can change the thing. So guess what? You're stuck, like the whole planet is stuck using known vulnerabilities on like a really important thing. And that is exactly the scenario for, you know, considering the right to secure, right? As a, almost a principle. How do we change that? How do we change that? How do we, what's, what's needed to actually address that? I mean, the right to secure. Yeah. And you think about how many uh, commercial entities uh, provide space-based services to, you know, the Department of Defense not just the Space Force, but across the entire, you know, enterprise there, the five-sided building, right. And if they're using firmware that's coming from a vendor, but they're on the hook to provide secure services to the Department of Defense, which then makes it a national security issue, right? How do we unstick this? Like, What's needed? Is this a legislative thing that has to happen? Is this something that an administration yeah. could change with a presidential policy directive? I mean, what's actually needed to to shift that? Huh. You know what? I'll, I'll leave the probably the more reasonable answers to the other two guests. But, um, I, you know, maybe this is one of those where... You Craig looks like he just fell what, out like, of his chair with the question. Um, but if I can make a real quick question, uh, comment on this, I think that the reality is it needs to be written into procurement language uh, and licensing agreements. Uh, and I, I've come across the exact concern that I mentioned previously in our past startup, which also focused on embedded systems, which we uh, thankfully sold off for in 2022. Um, Congrats. But, yeah, thanks. But that was a, what a fun nightmare that was. I, I lived the, the challenge and the excitement of your day uh, in my <laughs> nightmares uh, but, but one of the one of the uh, biggest issues we always had was just you're not allowed to change what was owned and operated in that original warranty uh, for, for that original stack because it's in warrant it's in, under warranty and if the warranty language uh, is voided then you cannot you know you can't operate critical infrastructure anymore right so you can't change anything you can't add security to it you cannot patch things you cannot up to update firmware because it voids everything from these manufacturers. And it creates this wonderful nightmare uh, of you know, cat and mouse game of policy, regulatory regimes, licensing agreements, uh, liability clauses that, you know, exactly what I'm was talking to. Yeah. And, you know, we generally just call those forever days, right? So instead of a zero day or an end day, like it's guaranteed to be there in the ground until the thing like just falls over. And, you know, I'll give you um, a good example. So this relates to Ukraine too, right? Sandworm, you know, it was the first generation of the attack was targeting, um, you know, the Siemens S5, I guess, like initially the S, the Siemens PLCs, right? Um, I don't know yeah, what a like, PLC you know, is. You're going to have to, you're going to have Programmable logic controller. It's basically like a, if this, then that. Thank right? you. For, for and <laughs> and I, I thank you on behalf of all of us that are not <laughs> okay. programmers. Yeah. But, you know, so, right, that attack went after, you know, the controller that controls centrifuges and things. But, you know, in the rest of the world, the same controller might work in a brewery or run, you know, a water pump or a distribution center for blah, blah, who knows what, groceries. Um, But, you know, so once that attack was uncovered and reverse engineered ad nauseum, people wrote books and papers and studied it, right? So Siemens spent a lot of effort, you know, saying, ah, we need to design a more secure design for this PLC. Okay. And they did, uh, you know, fast forward a few years, you know, so this is a, a vulnerability that was disclosed that we, we disclosed back in 2021, I want to say maybe 2022, where, you know, it is a secu- like fundamental misdesign of the secure boot algorithm for all 15 S7 Siemens, S7 1500 PLCs at, at that time, right, which is uh, probably two or three dozen models. Um, and they went through the disclosure process, but in the end, what ended up happening was uh, they clearly, you know, documented the existence of the vulnerability. You know, we assumed that there would be a patch. Papers were written about the nature of the thing, you know, di- dissecting why, like, you know, what went wrong, right? So, but Siemens put in their cert, literally, will not fix. <laughs> that was it, right? So this is the worst possible outcome and a pretty good example of the right to secure it because 
those PLCs are not going to get replaced, right? The average lifespan of those things is anywhere between like 15 to 25 years, right? You'd be crazy to like go into like sub, you know, level B, right? And rip out stuff that's working, that's keeping people alive. So it never happens. Um, those things are part of like very complex infrastructure. So it's not easy just to like take one piece out and replace it with some other piece. So basically for the next 15 to 20 years, we are guaranteed that every one of the 1500s that were, you know, that that was in existence before like four months ago is vulnerable to this attack today and forever going forward until they, they stop, basically they die or like they stop existing. So that's and a really these problem, systems right? are on space vehicles. Uh, yeah, so you know, so a satellite is in 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 a sense like a fairly small but sophisticated, highly compact, you know, industrial control system, right? With computers that can like do other things. But yeah, like you know, anything that kind of moves the retractables and stuff, you can think of it as that. But what's more important, what do you need, you know, for the thing that turns the satellite dishes so you can talk to the satellite? Well, guess what? Those are run by PLCs and variable frequency drives that turn the motors exactly like the computers that run centrifuge right inside a uranium enrichment plant. It's, the, you know, basically it's the design for like, how do we reliably control turning, using a motor to turn a thing in a circle sometimes through computers, right? So yes, it's in space. Yes, it's on the ground. It could be even underwater. Essentially the same thing, right? Firmware running real-time things, controlling super important stuff, and usually, you know, made without much thought in the way of security. Ang, Greg, Hector, thank you all so much for scaring the bejesus out of me and for coming on the Downlink podcast. <laughs> I was about to say, then we feel better now? Thank it's you. fine. It's, it's great. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. All of a sudden, software-defined radio or software-defined <laughs> networking doesn't seem as scary anymore. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for uh, having me. This is really good. Talk some of the stuff out. That's it for this week. For your daily dose of award-winning defense coverage, listen to the Defense and Aerospace Report with Vago Maradian. And for the Maritime Domain, listen to Cavus Ships with Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello. And get your Air Domain news and analysis from the Air Power Podcast with J.J. Gertler and Vago Maradian. I'm Laura Winter. Thank you for listening. Thank you.